All right, if you could start making your way back to your seats, we will go ahead and get continue on with our service. All right, let me um, go ahead and read our scripture passage, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer one more time. So if you got your Bible, turn to Psalms 33. So as we've done for the last few years, um, as we enter into the month of July, we take a break from our regular um, uh, series and whatever we've been doing. Right now, obviously, it's been Luke, and so we take a break, and we we just do some individual um, psalms and kind of skip around in the psalms a little bit talking about different topics. Um, typically, it's an opportunity for um, to hear a couple of other guys preach um, during that time. And so not next week, but the week after that, we're going to have James uh, come and uh, share with us. Um, he's actually going to be preaching out of Psalm 34, um, just coincidentally. And so so they'll be back to back on that one. Um, but let me uh, read our scripture and then I'll pray for us. So Verse one says, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the 10 string lyre. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea in jars. He put the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. In him, our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. God, as we come to your word and as we open it, um, Father, we pray that you would use your word to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. 
God, that you would shine um, a light on this text, that you would shine a light in our own hearts. God, that we would um, see it uh, and understand it. God, that you would uh, apply it to us, um, that we would live in light of these things. Father, we thank you for the blessings of your word. We thank you for the fact that uh, we have this available and accessible source um, that we can go to to see who you are, uh, to see your character, to see your uh, holiness, God, to see your great love um, for the world, God, to see the uh, the glorious mission uh, and the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is coming to the world to save sinners um, through his life, death, and resurrection, God, that we can see who we are in the scriptures and how we are to live. Uh, we can see the predicament that we have found ourselves in because of sin. We can see the solution to that in Jesus Christ. We can see the great calling that you have on our lives because of uh, the fact that we are now in Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God, um, what a blessing it is to have your word. We would certainly know you in some ways if we didn't have your word. We could look at creation. We could look at your providence uh, and see uh, your work in certain ways. But God, we would not know you Truly, we would not know you in a sufficient way because we would not be able to see uh, your son, Jesus Christ, and we would not be able to see the great salvation that he has wrought for us. So we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would use it in this time. We thank you. We praise you. And we ask all these things in your son's holy and precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So um, let me start with kind of a story, and it's a story um, obviously connected to the fact that we are on, uh, this is 4th of July weekend. And so we're sort of tying into, to some ideas that are connected with that holiday. And this is probably a story that maybe you are at least, um, aware of a little bit. Um, if, if you took uh, an American history class when you were, were in high school or something like that. So, um, many of you have probably heard of the story that on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So that would have been the year 1826. Um, at that time, there were only three signers of the Declaration who were still living. Those three men were Thomas Jefferson, who was 83, John Adams, who was 90, and, and probably a lesser known um, signer, um, but also the only person who signed the Declaration who was a Catholic, Charles Carroll, who at the time was 89 years old. And so they were coming up on this 50th anniversary, and so there was obviously a lot of um, anticipation and pageantry, and, and people were excited about this significant anniversary uh, of the founding of our country. And so everyone wanted to have one of those three original signers come to their festivities and their city and stuff like that. But the reality was is all three of the men were fairly well along in years. They weren't in great health, and so none of them were going to be able to, to attend any of these, these meetings. And so then the finally, the day came, July 4th, 1826, and something incredible happened that day. An incredible uh, coincidence or providence, as I think we will say. Two of those men and the two that were most responsible for the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, who was its primary author, and John Adams, both died on July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the signing, okay? Um, now, on one side, you might look at that and say, well, that's an incredible coincidence, all right? Except here's the deal. If you had lived in that time, nobody saw it as a coincidence, 
Pretty much everybody in our country, people were writing about it in newspapers. They were writing, preaching about it in sermons. People on both sides of the Atlantic, both in, in England and, in, in, and on the continent and in the United States, all looked to that providential death of these two super significant characters on the 50th anniversary of the signing, both looked to that. They all looked at that as providence. They said, this is a sign of God's favor and blessing on the nation of the United States of America. All right. Now, um, even to say that, I think for many modern people today, there would be a lot of people who would come to that observation with a lot of skepticism, I think. Um, if I were to say that was for sure evidence of God's unique blessing on the United States of America, a sign of his favor um, on the United States, people would say, ah, I don't know about that, Ash. Okay. And the reality is, is, is there's probably no way that we can know whether it was providential that that, that would happen on that day or just coincidental. Although as Christians, in a sense, we believe that all things are providential. And we're going to talk about that as we see and we have the idea that God is a God of sovereignty, a God who works his plans out in history. But it still raises that question. Was it a sign or was it not? And maybe the bigger question is this. Can a nation be blessed by God? Does God do that? Can a nation hold a unique spot in his favor? We know that God had such a relationship with the nation of Israel. But the question is, is for us, maybe does God, since the, the, the collapse of, of Israel as a, as a nation in the Old Testament or at the beginning of the New Testament, um, and then we could ask all kinds of questions about its, its reformation, um, in uh, after World War II, but the, but the question for us would be: Does God treat other nations that way, with particular favor? And if so, why would He choose certain nations over other nations? Well, here's the deal: I think He can, and I think He does, and I think Psalm 33 gives us a picture of how that favor works and how it comes to pass. And the conditions, at least in a very broad way, about how, how it would work, okay? And so what I'm going to do is I don't usually do this, but I'm just going to go ahead and sort of give you the outline because I'm afraid that I'm going to kind of get lost in, 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 in the, the language and stuff like that. And so I just want to kind of give you an outline of where we're going because this is, I think, the layout, the picture that we see in this passage. And it would be to say this. One, it is fitting... For an upright people to worship God. Okay. If, if, if we have a, a group of people who claim to be upright and, and, uh, noble and civilized, it is right for them to worship God. And God prefers certain characteristics and attitudes over others. He loves certain attitudes and he despises other attitudes. And moreover, all of creation is a function um, of his will and power causing it to exist. And therefore, if God has called all things into the existence by his sovereignty, then it makes sense that he would also call nations into their existence by his power and sovereignty. 
And that would be in accordance with those very attributes and things that he approves of. And therefore, it, it behooves us to act in a certain way, to live in a certain way, so as to receive or hope to receive the blessings of God on a, on a, on a national kind of civic level. Okay. That's sort of the, the outline. Okay. So that might be a lot. I'll kind of continue to go through it and break it down, but let's sort of begin at the beginning verse one. And we see this idea of godliness worship of the one true God is befitting of a righteous nation. So he begins out focusing us on worship, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous for it is fitting and upright, fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully. Shout for joy. Okay? There's a command in this passage to, to worship God. Okay? We are to sing. We are to praise. We are to make music. We are to shout to the Lord. And notice kind of the nuance of those places. We are to worship God with creativity. That's what it talks about when it says, bring him a new song. We are to worship God with excellence. It tells us to play skillfully. We are to worship God with exuberance. Shout for joy. All right? This is good and right for an upright people to do. Okay? It is fitting for a nation that wants to be a nation that is upright to worship the Lord and to worship him well. Now, I want to read you a quote from, from John Adams, and, and it's kind of an extended quote, and it's just something that ties into the idea of what we're looking at here. It's, it's, it's old-timey language, and so I hope, I don't want to get lost in it, but, but let me just kind of read it to you real quick. It says, so John Adams writes this. He says, while our country remains untainted with the principles and manners which are now producing desolation in many parts of the world, and while she continues sincere, and incapable of an insidious and impious policy, we shall have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned to us by providence. Basically what that's saying is this. That's not the end of the quote. But he's basically saying, hey, if we imbibe the things of the world, if we live the way the world does, then we can expect to um, end up in the mess that many places in the world are in. But if we will, in sincerity... Follow God in, in, with, with piety, then we can expect that He will providentially provide for us. But He goes on to elaborate. He says, but should the people of America, once they become capable of that deep simulation, He means faking it towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation while at the same time practicing iniquity and extravagance, and displays the most captivating manner of charming pictures and candor and frankness and sincerity while in rioting is rapine and insolent, then this country will be the most miserable habitation of the world in the world because we have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. So what is he saying there? He's saying, if we live in a godless way, then there's nothing in our national government. And he's zooming in on the Constitution. He's saying there's nothing about the way our government is ordered and our society is ordered that we will be able to continue. If we live in a godless way, there's nothing in our in our founding 
system to restrain that. And then he goes on to explain avarice, ambition, revenge, gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That's the key line. Our constitution was made for a moral and religious people, and it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Right? So what does that mean? That basically is to say this is, is John Adams is, is pointing something out, a long and drawn out kind of conversation, but he's saying this, he's saying it is fitting for the way that we have designed our, our government, this constitutional Republican democracy, it is fitting that we should worship the Lord. And if we don't, none of that stuff that has been created is going to hold together. All right. It isn't enough constitutional government, uh, you know, the three, three, um, uh, different bodies, the, the, the judicial and the executive and the legislature, but all these different systems that we have, none of those things are good enough or strong enough to hold our country together if we are not a people of morality and worship of the one true God. Okay. And so the deal is, is it ties into this passage specifically that idea that we saw in the very first phrase. It is fitting for the upright to praise God. Okay, it is fitting for us to do that. If we are not an upright people, our nation will suffer for that. Now, again, that does not mean that we are trying to impose some sort of, uh, you know, universal uh, Christianity on everybody in some way. Um, it is not against religious liberty. We want our nation to be a place where people can believe as they see fit. Because if you don't do that, if we force Christianity on everybody, it wouldn't be any good anyway, right? It would not be the kind of place that we want to live because you'd have a fake and coerced Christianity. So we're not talking about that. And yet at the same time, we want a national Christianity. So there's this term that's going around a whole lot lately, right? Of Christian nationalism. We hear that phrase, a whole lot. And it's a weird phrase because it's get, it gets a lot of bad press. Uh, and, and in many ways, maybe it should. But here's the thing that I always think about. When I hear that phrase, I go, I'm a Christian and I'm a nationalist. I, I love our country. I want what is best for our country. Um, I think it is our job to care about our country. Um, and it's other countries' jobs to care about their own countries. And so maybe my opinion of that term would be that you just got to make sure you put the noun and the adjective in the right place. I don't so much want a Christian nationalism, but maybe a nationalistic Christianity. I want a, I don't want a Christian flavored patriotism. I want a patriotic flavored Christianity. Does that make sense? What I mean by that is this. I want my identity to be found in Jesus Christ who happens to be an American, okay? My Americanness will be important, but my identity will be my faith in Jesus Christ, not the other way around, not an American that happens to be a Christian, but I want to be a Christian that happens to be an American. Now, you may not see it that way. You may say, I see it in a different way than that, Ash, but but it's, it's just something that, that I was thinking about as we, as we read through this, because I think what Adams, and maybe even this uh, this passage is pointing to, is the fact that, if we are not Christians first, then then our country can't stand together. It, it will not it, it will not hold together 
um, based on just the institutions that we have made. Now, again, I don't expect other countries to feel that way because they should be nationalistic about their own countries. They should love their own countries and want the best for their countries and work for the best of their countries. But I want my faith to define me and my nationality to be a secondary characteristic. And again, I believe the only way that we can hope to be blessed as a nation is by living as faithful Christians within our communities and our society in obedience to God. And it's fitting for an upright people to worship the Lord. Okay? So that's that first idea, that it is fitting for us to do this. But then the reality is, is this. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, there are certain characteristics that God likes, and there are certain things he doesn't like. Okay? That should just come go without saying. Verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right and true. The things that God says he has revealed to us are right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness. The Lord loves justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. God likes some things and some things he hates. His likes are a function of his character, of his being. And his dislikes are the things that are opposed to that. Self-righteousness, self-confidence, pride are not attitudes that the Lord approves of. On the contrary, the Lord loves righteousness. The Lord loves justice. He is right. He is true. He is faithful, uh, faithful and he favors he approves, he applauds, he rewards righteousness and justice. So again, he's not arbitrary in the things that he likes and the ways that he shows blessing. His blessings are a function of the things that he approves of. You could say God wants things to be a certain way. And moreover, what we kind of see in the next section is that God not only wants things to be a certain way, but God is the one who creates and sustains all things by the power of his will. Verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deeps in the storehouse. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded And it stood firm. His sovereignty is unquestionable and absolute. His power to create. When he speaks, things come to be. They are. That's the point of, I think, this passage is pointing us to that idea that we talk about all the time of ex nihilo. That God created in the beginning from nothing. He spoke and things were. But it's not the end of it. That's not the end of it. It's the beginning. God speaks and everything exists. But every moment of our existence, the course of your life, the history of the world, is a function of God's sovereign control over those things. God speaks. He decides. He determines. And things are that way. That's that's the way they are. And here's the deal. The wonder and the majesty of his, of his sovereign will 
is, is something that's hard for us to wrap our brains around, right? It's hard for us to figure out and reconcile and align the idea of how is God's sovereignty and our moral responsibility? How do those things line up and all these things? It's, it's a big question. But, but this picture, this, this, this passage is giving us this beautiful picture of, of God's sovereign power and creative will. So did you notice how I said it? It said that the universe, he has, he has breathed out of his mouth. Okay. I was thinking of the, the scene in Lord of the Rings. This is your obligatory, obligatory once a sermon Lord of the Rings reference. Okay. And Gandalf and Bilbo are sitting on the porch, remember, and they're sitting there smoking and Bilbo takes a puff and he blows out a smoke ring. He's very proud of the smoke ring as it, as it enlarges as it goes out in the air. And then Gandalf is like, watch this. And he blows a smoke out and then turns it into a ship. And all of a sudden, the wind catches the sails of the ship, and it sails on through the, the, the rain. So if God were there with them, the breath of his mouth would be everything that ever existed. Right? Not some shape, not some human invention, however complex. But the breath of God's mouth breathed out the entire universe, all that has ever existed. He gives us this picture of the immensity of the seas are in bottles on his windowsill. The depths of the earth are tucked away in his pantry. How does anybody respond to a God that big, that powerful, with fear and with reverential awe? Okay, so we have these two things. God wants certain things, and God has created and sustains all things by his will. So what should that make us think? If it is by God's creative power that the entire universe and all that is in it is established, then it stands to reason that that not only includes stars and galaxies and planets and things like that, but it includes the fate of nations. The existence and the prosperity of nations is by the will of God, not of their own will. Look at what it says in verse 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purpose of his heart through all generations. Here's the deal. A nation believes that it is in control of its own destiny. It cultivates a national strategy. It has economic interests. It has military objectives. And it thinks that by doing that, through these efforts, they will be able to establish themselves and determine their fate. But here's what the Bible tells us. There is a secret sovereignty of God acting in all these things. All the outcomes find their origin in the will of God. Men and armies and nations, they plan and they strategize and they execute. And they believe that by doing so, they will guarantee certain outcomes. You know, the Bible teaches us they're wrong. Verse 16, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all of its great strength, it cannot save. So here's here's what that means. It means a powerful army is not the cause of victory. It is the means of victory. A strong government is not the cause of national exceptionalism. It is the means by which those things are accomplished. The cause of those things is the will of God. The cause is his sovereignty. 
So God establishes a nation. He prospers it. He protects it. He preserves it. And in his providential care, that nation lives and moves and has its being. So then the next question we would ask, and it's in keeping with what we already talked about. Well, why does God prosper some nations and bring to other nations to ruin? Verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's sort of the key text for our, our the whole sermon. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. The people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. Okay, so notice the mixture of ideas here. It is right to think in terms of God's love and blessing and favor on nations in terms of what we would call election of unmerited favor, that God chooses nations at one level in a way that is unmerited. Okay, and so, for example, we can see that sometimes in in the Old Testament, the nation of Babylon was raised up to prominence not because they were godly, not because they were good or moral or anything like that, but because in God's sovereign will, he decided to use that nation to judge the nation of Israel. And then after they had done that, Babylon was judged itself, okay? But that was a function of God's sovereign will. And so it's right to talk about this sort of unmerited electing kind of choosing of God. There's no question that God does that. But that's not opposed to the idea that there are also thoughts, loves, values, behaviors, practices, which God approves of and favors and rewards. What does it say in verse 18? But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. God pays attention to and cares particularly for those who fear him, those whose hope is in his unfailing love. And what does he do? To deliver them from death and keep them alive during famine. He has a special protection that he puts on his people when they live in fear of him. And that's reverent awe of him. When they hope in him and his unfailing love. So if a nation will look to the Lord, the Lord will look to them. If they will walk in faith and repentance and dependence on God, then God will reward that. Again, we see a picture of that in the Old Testament with not the Babylonian Empire, but with the Assyrian Empire in the city of Nineveh. You remember the story of Jonah going to the city of Nineveh and what happens. Now, if you know anything about the Assyrians, they were like the worst, okay? They were a brutal, vicious, um, conquering nation, okay? We still to this day have uh, uh, carvings on temples and stuff of of the Assyrians um, killing their foes in the most creative and gruesome ways, okay? The Assyrians were an awful crew. And you remember, that's basically the function of the story is that God says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to these people and tell them to repent or I'm going to bring judgment on them. Nineveh, uh, Jonah doesn't want to go. Why? Because he's like, good riddance. I hope you bring judgment on them. They deserve it. And yet what happens, Jonah finally, through all of the adventures, ends up in Nineveh, he preaches repentance to the people, and guess what happens? The people of Nineveh repent. They turn from their sin, 
and ask God for forgiveness. And God relents and doesn't bring his judgment upon them. All right. God responds to their faithfulness, even if it's only that momentary picture, even if it's only an isolated circumstance, God responds to them in blessing and in faithfulness and in mercy. When a nation seeks after righteousness, right standing with God, when it seeks after justice, man, how much do we talk about justice in our culture currently? The Lord looks down in pleasure on those things. But when we live in violence, when we live in perversity, then the nation is in danger. So it's certainly true that in this psalm, the nation in view is Israel. Okay, because the reality is, is when this psalm was written, there would have been no other nation that would have fit the bill. Okay, there weren't any other nations following God. Um, There weren't any other nations that he had shown his particular care to. And so certainly they're thinking of Israel in this. And yet I think particularly verse 18 is a universal promise to us. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. On those who hope in his unfailing love. That's not just for Israel. That's for the world. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So then here's the thing. So then you say, well, what should we do? Well, that's how the passage closes. It tells us exactly what we should do. How should we respond to a God who desires certain attitudes and through his power brings into existence and preserves those who are faithful? What should we do? Verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. In him, our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. And then this this prayer, this request of God, may your unfailing love be with us, Lord. How? Even as we put our hope in you, to the extent that we put our hope in you, Lord, we ask that your unfailing love would be with us, okay? Notice that, man, there's something interesting in that, that even in the prayer, there's a recognition that if we live in an unfaithful way, we should not expect the blessing of God. But if we will live in faithfulness, in hope, if we will see God as our help and our shield, not in all the other, I mean, the reality is this, political parties, they cannot save us. Either of them, all of them, if we ever get in more than two, they can't. Politicians, they cannot save us, okay? That doesn't negate or undermine the importance of, of um, the electoral process and democracy and casting our vote and, and, and lobbying for our opinions and things like that. Those are all important things. But they are neither our shield nor our hope. God is our hope. God is our help. God is our shield. In him, our hearts should rejoice. Again, how many times have we talked about over the last few years of the sort of just, man, uh, the uh, of this world, right? Just the junk and the mean and the ugly and the sad and the depressing and all of that stuff, right? Over and over again, new things all the time, right? Rays of hope here and there, and yet at the same time, a whole lot of junk. But guess what? Our hearts still rejoice because we don't rejoice in the way things are going. We rejoice in God. Our focus is on on him and how he will work in these things. 
And ultimately, even if he doesn't work in them in the ways we would want to in the short term, um, we know that we can trust in him for eternity. So we should live in that way. Hope in the Lord. What does hope do, right? Hope looks forward, but it expects forward. It doesn't just say, oh, you know, maybe things will turn out better and maybe they won't. It says God will do these things. So let's turn to him in hope and in faithfulness. Let's turn to him in praise that is fitting an upright nation. Let's trust in his holy name alone and ask that he would show his unfailing love to us. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I am convinced that um, that you have, uh, over the centuries, shown a particular blessing and care uh, for, you, the United, for the United States of America. God, we have not been the only recipients um, as a nation of your um, particular care. God, you have worked in places all over the world um, to to protect and to provide um, for for people groups and for communities. God, for states and for nations. Um, and so, God, we we do not claim a unique, um, we do not claim that we are the unique benefactors of, of your, of your blessing, um, that it is not something that is only for the United States of America. And yet, God, we want you to bless our nation. We want to be a people who, um, live in accordance to your word and will. We want it to be normal, um, and, and common and, uh, uh, typical. Um, God, that people would know you, that they would seek after you in faithfulness, in, in, in morality, in decency. God, that we would live lives, um, that honor you by living in accordance with your word. Father, we are in a, certainly in a time in our nation where much of it is turning and running from you as fast as they can. And so God, we, as we often do, we continue to pray for revival. We've asked that you would bring revival in our community, in our church. God, we ask that that revival would be bigger than that, that it would be a national revival. God, we have, we have seen you move in uncommon and supernatural ways throughout the history of your church. And yet it has been generations since we have seen you, uh, do that, um, the way you have done it in the past, God. And so we ask for your blessing. God, we hear of places all over the world where, where pockets of revival are breaking out of, of nations where, um, despite all kinds of, of difficulties, God, people are coming to you in droves. And yet, um, in our country, we see the opposite. So we ask for God that you to, for you to turn that around. We ask that you would convict us of our sin, that you would show us the places that we are, um, God rebelling against you. God, that we would focus our lives on living in such a way that honors you uh, and the gospel by which you have saved us. God, help us to do that. And as we do that, in keeping with that, God, would you bless our nation? Um, God, would you give us peace? Would you give us righteousness? Would you give us justice? Uh, that we would be able to live in a place um, where uh, people can live in peace and 
where they can seek and find you uh, in, in safety. We thank you. Uh, we praise you. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. weekend. Um, hope you uh, get to spend some time with family and, uh, and enjoy um, just the blessings that we have. And, and I would encourage you to do this. I, don't, I feel like uh, it, it's not hip to pray for our country. It's not the kind of thing that people talk about, um, particularly maybe among uh, our generation. I know I'm a little older than some of y'all. Um, man, pray for our country. 
right? Um, as you're in your observances tomorrow, um, as we're having fun and eating barbecue and, and shooting off fireworks and blowing things up, um, which are all good and literally mandated by the founding fathers. So, uh, we should do all those things. And yet at the same time, um, thank God for the freedoms that we have and ask for his blessing on our country. Amen. All right, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.